she's looking for answers which duh you know (laughs) that's why she's asking a question um but yeah so that's that's where I'm going now Welcome to Marginally, a podcast about writing, work, and friendship. I'm Olivia, a consultant living in Ukraine and London, working on a novel and daydreaming about lots of other projects. And I'm Megan, a librarian, student, and freelance book indexer, querying my first novel, drafting a second, and researching a third. We're so happy this week to have podcast friend, writer, and writing coach Caroline Donahue back to talk about her new book, The Story Arcana, Tarot for Writers. We loved catching up with Caroline on all that's happened in the last year, including a move from L.A. to Berlin and digging into why tarot is not scary, specifically how tarot can help you get beyond everything you've been taught to get in touch with your intuition. It's an episode for tarot lovers, skeptics, and everyone in between. Caroline is the host of the Secret Library podcast and GTFO, a podcast about moving abroad. You can find her at carolinedonahue.com and on Twitter and Instagram at Caro Donahue. Okay, so let's start with maybe just like what have you been doing since we talked to you last? It's probably a year, let's say. Yeah, it's been a yeah, year, and, I But think, you've had almost, all this like big um, stuff going on. I remember I was like, oh, wow, there's so much stuff that she's had going on since we talked to her. So, yeah. Yeah, so the update, I think, I mean, the last time I talked to you, I remember where I was sitting. I was sitting in my sort of corner of my office in Los Angeles in our house. And I don't even know if we had fully decided that we were going to move at that point. No. I think you well, you hadn't were just thinking it about it. Maybe you had. I mean, yeah. Because when we first came up with the idea, we were going to do it this past January, we weren't going to, we weren't going to move in September. And then what happened was in the middle of the summer, um, our landlord in, in LA, they have rent control and you have the right to raise your rent every, every year. And our mm-hmm. landlord didn't do that. He was really nice and he only did it every other year. And he decided to do it after a year and a half instead of waiting two years. Mm-hmm. So we had thought, okay, we'll move in January. That'll be fine. Our rent won't go up again. No problem. And when he did it in July, we said, well, <clears throat> Do we really just want to stay here an extra four months and pay extra rent when we're planning to do this anyway? And we said no. So we accelerated it really rapidly and got rid of all of our stuff, sort of cleaned house, did the did the Marie Kondo to like a f- level 14 and <laughs> put all our cats on a plane and, and got out of there. So we got to the, we got to Berlin in September and then. I did teacher training for the fall and then we got our visas in February and then, which was nice because there was this gap between finishing the teacher training and getting the visa when we weren't allowed to work, which was kind of heaven because I spent most of the time in the library writing, which I loved. And then as soon as the visas came through, we've been kind of job hunting and apartment hunting because we didn't want to get a long-term lease until we knew we were going to be able to stay in the country. That seemed like a logical choice. So then we have, (laughs) since we had the visa, we've been job hunting. I'm now teaching in addition to working with private clients and doing the podcasts. And then, um, so that started and then we found a flat. So we're moving in like three weeks and we have to find all new furniture. So that's what we've been doing in the past year. So your current place is furnished. Yeah. 
which is nice. Um, I want to ask an unfair question, but also I know you've been putting out missives, uh, so probably you have some thoughts. But what do you think you've learned about like writing and the writer's life through all of that? Because that's like a lot of up and down, plus the Marie Kondo stuff and everything else. I think, I think that, I mean, to an extent. I mean, this is, I I guess it's an unfair question. So I'll give you an unfair answer in a way, which is that (laughs) I feel really lucky that we were able to do this. I think not everybody can just chuck everything and move to another continent because they think that's better. Um, But basically I read this book by a new partner who's a Finnish writer called the Nordic theory of everything or the Nordic view of everything. I always get it wrong. Mm, yeah. You, had a, you interviewed her. I interviewed her. I was so obsessed with this so book good. that I stalked her and had her on. <laughs> and the reason for that was that she talked about the way that Finnish society was structured. And it was essentially that they value taking care of people and people being able to pursue happiness and independence. And I was not very confident in my ability to learn Finnish, which is why I don't live in Finland right now. But I did take German in high school, and Germany is similar in many ways to how Finland operates. It's not it's not quite as far, but there are many things that are valued here, like the fact that as we record this, I'm about to have a four-day weekend for Easter because they love their public holidays here. Um And we didn't have that. And so I just felt like as long as I live in the U.S., I'm not going to have the kind of flexibility or personal space or even social structures in place that will allow me to really lean into writing and make writing my top priority. It's just not going to happen here. And it's certainly not going to happen in Los Angeles where it's so expensive and you have to have a car and all of these expenses that you have to have. So I thought, okay, I got to give these expenses up and find a different way to do it. So the first thing, probably the most basic thing I've learned is it's it really is better <laughs> in the sense to to have certain social supports that you can get here. Um, The other thing is that you can probably put up with more stress than you think you can in the service of a long-term goal. So the fact that writing mattered that much to me made it feel possible to deal with things like, I don't know if we're going to get kicked out of the country or not. And by deal with, I don't mean it was sunshine and roses the whole time. Thankfully, my husband is not in the apartment. He would come in and be like, she's lying. It was not, <laughs> it was not like happy laughter, fun time all the time. I was, I was scared about whether or not we would get the visa. There were lots of things that were scary. But at the same time, I also think that having this kind of experience is material. So my character that I'm in the novel I'm working on right now has a lot of uncertainty in her life. She has a lot, she has a things that she's concerned about. She doesn't know if she's going to fit in. She doesn't know entirely where she belongs. So going through this experience for the last year really mirrors a lot of things that my character is going through throughout the course of the novel. And I think I will write a better book for having gone through it. I wasn't smart enough to do this on purpose. Um, I've just realized it after the fact. So I, I think one thing that I say to my clients a lot is there aren't bad days. There's just good material. So I had a client telling me about some stressful stuff she was going through recently. And I said, write it down, girl. It's going in the book. And she had done some tarot and had pulled uh, the tarot, the tower for that month. 
and said, oh, God, it's the Tower Month. And I was like, you're going to get so many good scenes about it. You're going to get so many good scenes out of that Tower Month. And she said, oh, you're sick, but that's kind of right. It's kind of right. So I think that one of the great things about writing is it means that that terrible things happening can have a purpose. Yeah. You can use them for something. It isn't just a terrible day that just has to be a terrible day. It, it can be transformed into something else. So I've been grateful to have that as an outlet. Yeah, that's always been kind of how I've interpreted write what you know, that that advice doesn't mean that you have to write a story about someone who's exactly like you. But say you've gone through periods in your time in your life or, you know, periods of intense loneliness, then there you go. You can tap into that and write about someone totally different from you who also experiences intense loneliness, for example. Yeah, I think there's no there's no replacement for the actual emotional experience rather than just I think that if I had stayed in my same routine and kept doing the same thing and was trying to write a novel about somebody who experienced complete upheaval in their life, it probably would have, it wouldn't have, it just would have been a little off. It wouldn't have felt entirely right. Even though I had had other periods of upheaval and change way in the past, they weren't present enough. Now, if anyone is writing a book listening to this that has a lot of upheaval, I'm not saying you have to go and like uproot your whole life. There are other ways to get in touch with this. This is a pretty extreme solution that I sought, but in now that I'm on the other side of it and I can kind of feel comfortable and look forward to moving into my flat that we have, um, I can be grateful for it. But up to that point, it, it was pretty stressful. Yeah. Well, and I'm sure the stress is not over. Like having got, you know, I think what is weird about moving to another country is you go through like cycles of stress. So you think like, okay, this is like a good level. And then like, there's like another level you didn't even know about that happens. I don't, you know, which is not to say like give up or something, but it just means, you know, there's like always is, I think what's great about any new challenge that you don't know how you're going to kind of get through is that there's always another level that you can kind of use to uh, develop yourself, if nothing else. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, we just signed the lease on our flat this week. And my husband took it in to drop off and then texted me, we've already done it wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Like we had to sign two copies. We only signed one. And then they said, your woman is not here. Therefore, you can't sign another copy right now. Because, of course, in German, Frau is the same word. Woman and wife is the same word. So they often make this mistake in English. So I was like, yes. But I just kept thinking, it's going in the memoir. We're going to write a memoir about this. And all of this, all of these things that we've done wrong can all go in the book later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and every time you do so, I mean, at this point, like I following along on your Instagram and and your tiny letter about your notes from Berlin one. I mean, you've already had plenty of not to be like, you've done all kinds of things wrong. But, you know, this <laughs> this happens so to me, too. You know, it's like every time you it takes you three days to get a new cell phone because you have to try 16 different methods first. You know, you get used to it's the same thing with like getting rejection letters, right? You just after a while, you do build up a tolerance to it, I guess. And you're like, well, I don't even expect to get get it right the first time anymore. So it's no big deal. Like we'll just plan for it. So yeah, you definitely have to plan for it. I mean, I think something that's, that's really interesting about living in a country whose language is not your first language. And, and I say frequently that my German is just good enough to cause problems. So (laughs) I understand it. I, I have one teaching job I have where I have to communicate with my employer in German, um, because they don't really speak English. So I have 
things where I'm only in German, but I will make mistakes because my German is good enough to kind of get by, but not perfect. And the other problem is, is that when you interact with people primarily in German, they assume that you understand all the rules, like the inherent rules of which there are many in Germany that they just assume, you know, and if you speak German, they're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know all the rules. And then when you break one, they're more upset. But I'm thinking, well, I didn't know that. How could I possibly know that? And they say, well, you're speaking German. You know how it works. And I was like, no, I really don't. I have no idea. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I think that's something that keeps coming up. And it's it's just something that's part of the part of the process. Yeah. And everything becomes a story. It's true. Yeah. It's going to be a big book. It's going to be a big book. What I did wrong in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, it's like those times when you're just sitting there thinking like, this is terrible now, but it is going to be a hilarious story in, you know, a few weeks. And so um, I guess that's how you have to deal with everything. Well, even if we never write this book, it's a huge source of comfort to my husband and me right now to say, oh, write it down. This will be good. This will be good. It, yeah. it feels a lot better than, oh, God, what do we do now? It's a great coping mechanism. So, well, and so speaking of all of that, you've had so much change and now you've recently just started working again. And so this is something that I know a lot of people deal with. I know I, I do is when there's always like, I always felt like this when I, my children were, were newborns or ba small babies is it's like, just when I felt like I'd gotten everything figured out, everything changed again. And it was like schedules changed and naps and feeding and their whole personalities. And, you know, it was like, I never felt like I could stay on top of it. And, um, you know, I feel like it's that way with life too. You know, just when you, get your schedule set and you you're in a good routine everything is completely different and like even when you know that what you're going through like your glorious several weeks writing in the library while you were waiting in that visa you know liminal state you knew that it was coming to an end but it, it there's no way you can like stop yourself from falling into it as a routine anyway and then when it changes how do you how have you been dealing with that I would say with mixed results is probably what I would say first. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, I mean, that that library routine was really great. It was great. But I knew it was not going to be sustainable and it wasn't going to be possible, first of all, because I was able to get up in the morning and go straight there. And that library, if you don't get there by 930 in the morning, forget it. You're not getting a desk. It's just not happening. So I've had to give up on that particular library if I can't go first thing in the morning, which is pretty rare. So I think what has had to happen is that I've had to break down what feels like real progress and to get really clear about what that means. And then to look at, okay, how can I work with the schedule that I now have and continue to make real progress? Because I mean, a schedule that only works when your life is perfect is is not really an effective writing schedule. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's 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 not a real routine. It's like a it's like a dream state or something. And I've had to accept that that is not going to be possible because on top of that, the fact that I'm teaching, I'm teaching at a place where my schedule changes every week. So I don't know my schedule for the following week until the Friday before. And things move around. So I can't plan for next week until it's Friday. I can say I'm not available on these days. Um, I can block off time that way. But in general, because it's a new situation and I'm trying to get really integrated in it, I'm not doing that. So it's looking at, 
okay, what, what blocks of time do I have next week and how do I want to use them and what needs to happen? Because I'm not just working on the book. I have clients I am teaching. And then I also have now two shows because I'm a lunatic and I have to do what has to happen to maintain those. So it's sort of like, okay, well, what needs to happen and how can I be really protective of the time and energy that I need to have in order to move forward? And I think the first thing is when you're in the middle of a change to just give yourself a break for a couple of weeks. I mean, I've been in this for three weeks and I have not been pushing myself that hard. I've looked at, okay, I have one goal, like fix that scene that I know I need to fix this week and next week. Okay. Let's try to write a few thousand words in very small chunks over, over the week. And then I'm going to feel okay about that. But I don't like to get into a pattern where I make ridiculously long to-do lists and then keep not finishing them and then feel terrible about, oh, look, I'm not getting anything done. I just don't think Mm -hmm. that builds confidence or effective progress at all. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I agree with that. I want to ask, like, you have a lot of different projects. I mean, well, so you have so many projects that you just talked about, but also you have a new book, so we are, like, at least partly here to talk about your new book. So how did you like, I guess there's so much going on for you in the last six, six months, nine months. Like, how did you get all of that done in terms of process? And then I do want to talk obviously about the substance of your book. I have so many questions about that too. Yeah. I think in terms of that, I ran the, the idea for the book came from a coaching group that I've run for a while called the coffee shop writers group, which has been on hold lately because I think I want to move it to a new platform. Um, but I had a six month group and I looked at that group and one day I was in the shower and I thought, huh, a six month group is 24 weeks. And with an intro week and a closing week, I'm left with 22 weeks. That means I could cover one card from the major arcana per week. And then that that could be a process. And and during this, whatever it was, like a 15-minute shower or something, I realized, oh, okay, actually this parallels the sort of hero's journey of the, the major arcana, parallels what most characters go through in a book, and it also parallels what a writer goes through in the process of writing a draft. And it also, the, the book itself has its own existence. And so that has to go through various states of being. So I had this aha moment and I thought, okay, this is perfect. So I worked through that material for six months with these clients and discussed it with them. I wrote them a newsletter every week with a lot of content. It was almost probably too much content, to be honest. I think they were a little bit like, oh my God, with all of this (laughs) content, but I was really excited about it. So I was happy to write it. So I was writing this every week And this was for about six months leading up to when I moved. So by the time I was in the depths of the move, I had all of this content already written. So then when I I got to Germany, I knew that I wanted to work on that and I wanted to change it into a book. And I think part of what happened is that sometimes when you're working on a project, you can kind of let it languish until something happens that pushes it forward. I mean, if I look at a lot of things that I've had in terms of projects, it's just because an opportunity came up and I knew I wanted to take it and it required finishing the project that I was working on. So I was, I was in touch with uh, Joanna Penn of the creative pen. She's been on my show a couple of times 
we get along really well. And I knew that she was digging the whole shadow thing. So I had talked to her a little bit about this idea. And she said, I'm really into it. I've got an episode open in January. What, do, you know, do you want to talk about it on there? And I said, okay. And I said, okay, great. That means I need to write this book and have it done by January. So that was basically what happened was I knew it had to be done in time to talk to her about it. So that motivated me to go through and edit all of the material that I had, rework it. And I just kind of made it it was easier to do it this fall because I was kind of in study mode because I was doing this teacher certification process and I was in this almost like a I'm in university student mode and I just made working on the book another class, so to speak, in my schedule. And so I went through and I put, I use Scrivener like you do. And I put in a slot for the introduction. I put in a slot for a how to use this book. I put in a slot for each of the cards and then I would set up and then I think I had a resources and an appendix and things at the end. And so then I looked at how many weeks I had until I needed to be finished. And then I said, okay, we're going to do this card on this day and we're going to do this card on this day. And I just blocked it out and scheduled it. And it wasn't as hard because I wasn't writing it from scratch. I was really editing and reworking some material and making it fit. Um, and then that was kind of how the book process came together for that book. So Olivia is the tarot novice or um, totally unfamiliar with it. And then I am definitely not as familiar and expert as you are, but it's, you know, it's one of those things that I messed around with in high school in the nineties, as you do. Um, yes. And then, but you know, my small East Texas town, all we had access to was like Rider weight and then tarots with like fairies and dragons on them. And you know, neither of those decks really spoke to me. Um, and so then I put it away and then picked it up a couple of years ago and um, I fell in love with Mother Peace, which if I had been able mm. to get my hands on it in the 90s would have been amazing because it was around. But um, it actually came out the year that I was born, which I take as like a sign. I love but, it. Yeah. And so it's been something that I have found like really helpful and um, have used to guide lots of big decisions like quitting a job and you know it's like the same card kept coming up over and over again and um was like you know this is really this is something it's I am interpreting it this way because I this is like what my subconscious really wants me to do right you know um so I like to look at it as like a tool for intuition and so I was really stoked about your about your book because it's been really helpful already um I'm have been kind of, kind of hit this like halfway through now what am I doing I have this outline but I'm stuck in this like the mud and the muck of the middle part of a, it's not the middle part chronologically in the book but just the middle part of the process um, and so I found it really helpful to just like step back and like clue into what's what's missing what I need to let go of that kind of thing um, so it was great for me to just jump right in but Olivia is less familiar. So if you could talk a little bit, um, I think she's having internet issues, but if you could just talk a little bit about for our like tarot novices and skeptics, um, or even agnostics. Yeah, I think it's, I, I've had a lot of people. I mean, I even have one friend who said like, Oh, I don't know if it's, if it's a bad thing. Like people still worry about, is it, yes. is it forbidden? Is it a dark, terrible thing to to work with tarot and is it 
you know, sacrilegious or something. Um, and I think it's what I like to think about it as is in connection to my background. When I got my master's, I got it in expressive arts therapy. So I studied psychology and the way that kind of the art artistic processes connect to your psychology. So primarily tarot has always been an extension of that where I look at how imagery can speak to your subconscious and how it can connect to things that are already happening in your own brain. It's just you don't have a doorway to that part. And so it can be really frustrating when you're writing something and you think, I know there's something here. There's something about this character or there's something about the scene. It needs to happen, but I just can't quite articulate it. And sometimes you need another portal to get into the part of you that knows what needs to happen for that part of the story. And I find that often changing the, the container is what helps. So we work with words all the time, obviously, as writers. We're sitting along, we're typing along, we're looking at words. And I find switching to imagery can often feel like a shot of adrenaline or something that it's like when you go on vacation and you see completely different scenery and completely people have a different lifestyle, they wear different clothes, everything is really different, then you get the chance to reboot a little bit and you see things differently. So I find that using something like tarot is a, it's a little bit like a vacation for your brain to get away from just thinking about the words and just having language as your method to communicate with yourself. So that I think for the people who are fearful, and I, I always quote my friend, uh, Susanna Conway, who teaches a lot about tarot also, you know, they're just bits of card with pictures on them. That's all they are. They don't have special powers or um, they're not going to control your life. They're not going to make your future different than it would be. It's it's I don't believe that anyway. But I do think that by looking at a picture that has a scene on it, you can react to that picture and that scene. And you can think, oh, I see how this might relate to this process. And I find it's really helpful either in structuring the story or I had a situation the other day. Like if you have a busy schedule like we talked about a minute ago or you're changing jobs or you have something that happens where you get away from your story for a little while. And it's it's that moment where you're coming back to it and thinking, oh, it's really hard to reconnect. So I had to write a scene. I knew I had to get my character from point A to point B. And I pulled a few cards and I said, okay, well, what's the overview of this? What's the point of this happening right now? Because every scene has to have some kind of point. There has to be a reason it's in the book. So I said, okay, what's the point? How's she feeling about this? What are her impressions of the world around her? And, and what's going on when she gets to this next place? And <clears throat> there were a few cards in there, one of which that was particularly helpful was there was a card that it's the four of wands for anyone who's interested in the tarot. And so I said, oh, when she arrives at this place, there's a party happening. I didn't ever think of there being a party. And she shows up and there's already all this action going on and she's just swept into it. And I realized, oh, that actually solves a lot of issues about how is this going to go when she gets to this place. Um, and it was something that I hadn't considered before. But this picture of a celebration on this card opened up a solution to a plot point that I hadn't solved kind of consciously. And sometimes we don't solve things consciously. It's like answers that come in the shower, answers that come on a walk, answers while you're in the car or doing something else. This is a way to speed up the doing something else. If you don't have time to go for a run for an hour, you can pull a card and have 
maybe a similar kind of effect because you're just looking at something completely different. Sorry, I did have internet problems. I could hear everything you guys were saying, but I couldn't respond to you. Um, yeah, now you can hear me. Okay, good. Um, so I'm, yes, I think that what is interesting is like, I also was raised in this sort of super Christian background. And so like everything, anything that's the occult, right? Or some other word that you want to use for this, like these are really scary things. Um, but quite a lot of it is just like whatever, intuition or something. And what I think is really interesting is how afraid we are of like anything that you haven't uh, already been taught by someone else. Right. And so that's what I think is really interesting about tarot. And um, and it's also like I'm interested in, also, you know, I mean, what is there's like only women talking about this right now on the Internet. Like I haven't seen any dudes talking about tarot. And, you know, part of that is and it, like that's a whole longer conversation, probably. But um, but I did. I just think, you know, being able to go back to what it is that you can feel in your body and some kind of earthiness and that sort of thing, of course, is like female, but that's partly because everything that we're allowed to feel is mostly male right now in our kind of existing society, right? Like we're allowed to feel ambition and we're allowed to feel like whatever other things. And these are emotions or some physical aspect, but you're not really allowed to like whatever, feel lots of other things that women haven't even necessarily put names to, right? There's French philosophers, female uh, feminist philosophers that are like, we can't even speak in like language that anybody would recognize because that's all kind of male right and so I'm interested in it but also there is some part of me that's still like oh sounds scary um so I mean I've now looked at your book I'm very curious and I'm very excited to look at it um and to use it actually because it's nothing scary but why don't you tell us why your book is not scary <laughs> <laughs> I think well uh, there's so many things in what you said that I want to address. I will get to why my book is not scary, I promise. But the first thing I think is that when you talk about, and I think it's true, that sometimes things that we haven't been taught by someone else feel really scary. And it feels scary not to be inside of the confines of the familiar. But think about how boring it would be if every book you read was just like every other book you'd already read. It's like when you get sometimes I've gotten hooked on like a very small particular subset of genre. Like I got into like a cozy mystery phase where there were these certain kinds of problems that were solved in a certain kind of way. And if you stay inside of that little tiny area, at first it feels really cozy and great, but then it starts to feel like, is this all there is? You know, I'm reading the same kind of story over and over again. And then you have to read something like, I don't know, some crazy sci-fi or something that just feels really different. And so I think that as writers, we we have to get comfortable with getting outside of what we already know, whether that's figuring out what our characters have done or what they're going to do or what the plot is going to be. So I think that looking at tarot in some ways is no different than writing a story about something that you're not completely sure about yet. I mean, we have to go into these things all the time. Like we have to learn about periods of history if that's happening or about a certain kind of experience or even a different neighborhood in our own city if that's where the character goes. So in some ways, this is a metaphor for that. And I think that some of it is just there is symbology that is on these cards. And and the nice thing about now, which is different than what Megan was saying earlier, which I 
agree with is that a long time ago, there were like three decks and that was it. And you either like those decks or you didn't like those decks. And the Rider weight in particular, people seem to either love or they find it really scary looking. And it is very magic-y and it's very symbol-y, like symbols. I don't know what this symbol means. And this is a very weird reference, but I, at the age of not nine, like one might think, but no, like about 20, watched Hellraiser at three o'clock in the afternoon in college and was so terrified. I had to make my boyfriend come over and sit with me. The, like It was complete broad daylight. And I had such fear about you could pick up what was basically a Rubik's cube and then be sucked into the ninth level of hell and, and not realize that you had done this to yourself. So I understand that like the fear of encountering symbols that are not familiar to you is real. It's a real thing. And at the same time, I think that there's such a wide variety of decks now that you can find one. If symbols freak you out, you can get a deck that is, I'm not joking, 100% kittens. You can get all kittens. You can also get one. I kickstarted one. It's adorable. All rescue cats. Super cute. So find if whatever you're comfortable with image-wise, there will be a deck out there for you. And the most important thing I think is not to go and learn like an academic what the history of the deck is and what the historical meanings of each card is so you quote unquote get it right. What's more important is that you pull a card and ask a question, how does this relate to my story? What information does this give me about my story? And depending on the kind of story you're writing, you may deal with really dark and scary characters. That may happen. But this is just information that you're going to learn about your characters. It, it comes from the deck. It's not coming from anywhere else. It's coming from inside of the story you're already writing. So if you're writing a scary story, then digging in deeper with tarot will probably be scary. That I can't protect you from. But as long as you're inside of a world that you're okay with working with, all of the things that can happen to somebody are largely represented in the tarot. So you can look at how you address that. You can look at how you write that. I mean, if you see a card like the Ten of Swords, where somebody's usually lying on the ground with a bunch of swords stuck in their back, that doesn't mean that somebody is going to end up with actual swords stuck in their back necessarily. Like everybody's been in a situation where you felt stabbed in the back, so to speak, and it felt like it couldn't get any worse. That's an emotional experience all of us are familiar with. So I think looking at the experiences in the deck is really about looking at them as reflections of emotional experience or metaphors for experience that we have. Um, yes, there are things that happen in life that are horrible. People die, people get sick, all of these happen. And these things happen to our characters too. So I think it would be a mistake to try to create a deck that left all of those things out because that's a very real part of experience. And it, it's, I think it's wrong to ignore it or to act like it can't happen. So I think that in a sense, my answer is that there's nothing about tarot or the book talking about tarot that I wrote that's any scarier than how life actually is because all it is is a mirror for life experience. And that's what books are, is books are a way to go through an experience and learn something from it. I don't know if that completely answers it. Yeah, no, it does answer it. And I think it's useful. I mean, uh, by the way, I'm not scared of your book. But <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's only because I've like had a chance to actually look inside of it and think, you know, and really imagined like what it would be like to maybe do some of the exercises. And I really like them. So uh, yeah, like 
yeah, anyway. So if anybody's out there and they're from like some crazy Christian background and they're scared of tarot, like it's okay. FYI. Um, <laughs> yeah, and do you, you want to honestly yeah, do it without a deck even. If having a deck is too scary, the questions, there are writing prompts throughout the book and you could just work with those writing prompts even without a deck if you wanted to kind of dip your toe in. That is doable for sure. I think it's more fun to do it with a deck personally, but I encourage you to find a deck that you feel comfortable with and that the imagery feels appealing and inspiring. So I think that's the thing to start with. And there are so many out there that look look until you find one that works for you. You will find it because there are as many decks at this point, it feels like as there are people. So many. Yeah. Well, so one of the things that Olivia said that I really loved, and then it's also part of what you have in your book, um, is that something that that we're struggling with, I think, culturally, um, as far as intuition goes, is trusting something that's not taught to you by somebody else, but trusting something that you're like figuring out for yourself. Um, and that tarot does help you get into that. And one of the things that I really like about your book is one, you really do encourage like trust, trust the meaning that you see in the cards and not what the little guidebook tells you the card means. Um, and you, although you do provide meanings and interpretations and things to go with one, your, your book really covers from like a story perspective and it's not necessarily like the meanings that it corresponds with the me- the traditional meanings, but it's not like you're not just, it's not a substitute, you know, edit, copy, edit, paste of whatever's in the guidebook that comes with your deck. Um, so I think that's really cool because it's a new way, even if you are trying to rely on, you know, Caroline Donahue's interpretations of these cards because somebody else, she's teaching me and I don't have to like listen to my own intuition because I'm too scared. Um, it's still like through a different prism and a slightly different angle on it, um, which is helpful. Um, And then I, so the thing that I found the coolest and I would like for you to talk a little bit more about how you came to this is, so you have like three different levels of how you can, um, how you can use it. One is like on the character level, one's the story level, and one is your journey as a writer. But in that you talk about, I got that right, didn't I? Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) And (laughs) in it, you talk about, seeing your story as a partner as like its own cause kind of like Elizabeth Gilbert's big magic um, as its own entity, but not just like to take it even farther than she takes it. Not just like this thing that wants to be written, but this like partner on this journey with you and you, you know, a traveling companion and how you're helping each other. And that was so, I have really felt lately like I've been, fighting with my story and we're like at cross not at cross purposes but I don't know like not working together at all and I've been like it's like I'm feel like I'm having to wrestle it into submission and that's that's not at all like a helpful process or healthy and um how did you come up how did you come to that because that was such a such a useful exercise I think, well, I mean, it probably happened in the shower. I mean, everything seems <laughs> everything to. Does. I think some I know of the people was... who keep marker boards in their shower to write things down. Totally. There's also a note. There's like a pad and a pencil and you can put it in there and it'll write on that paper. It's like slightly waxed paper. I used to have that one. Now I just sort of run out and write things down. But I think partly 
partly there was definitely a little bit of that Elizabeth Gilbert in it was that I'm working with this idea. And it, it was just the experience of writing over time that, I mean, I've also asked enough authors at this point, where did this idea come from on my own show and have had them mirror my own experience, which is, I'm not sure it just showed up. Um, and that over time, it has not ever felt like I'm creating the characters in my story. It feels like they exist somewhere and I'm getting to know them and I'm trying to do a good job telling their story because they can't do it by themselves. And so I have found that to be a comforting place to be rather than, a, I don't know, a downgrade from being a writer. I think that we put writing on a pedestal in a way that implies that we have made all of the decisions about the plot and we have made all of the decisions about the characters and it's all in our hands and we're doing it all ourselves. And I don't really love that kind of pressure and I don't feel that that's what I've done. I think I've gotten to know my characters and sometimes I think any writer who writes fiction at least has had the experience of trying to get your character to do something and they won't do it. Or you say, oh, yeah, you're going to go from here to here to here. And they say, oh, that's a nice idea. No, no, no. It's going to it's going to be weird. It's going to be weird if I do it that way. And you have to kind of sit with it and say, you're right. OK, yes, this person would not do that. And sometimes it happens that way. Sometimes it happens when you have a critique group or an editor looking at it and saying, I don't buy this. I don't buy this person doing that. But there is a moment where the character's logic has to be more important than your own logic as the writer. And I think if that's true, then you can't be the boss. The writer is not the boss and the and the character is not some employee that you're bossing around and is going to do your bidding in the story. And if that's true, then you are partners, you're colleagues, you're basically work colleagues, your characters and you, and you are getting the the sort of water cooler gossip from them about what they did with their lives and you're writing it down for them and you're writing it down as best as you can. And so I, I just felt that that was more true about my own experience. Um, and I felt like it was more honest. And I, I just don't feel like, I, I felt like it was really arrogant to say, you know, I wrote this story and everything came from me. And, and yeah, I'm the one who wrote it down, but I cannot confidently say where every idea came from or what the source was. But it, it certainly wasn't all me just writing it out as, you know, making it happen like some kind of creator. No, I really, yeah, I like that idea of a partnership. I'm in the very early stages of my book. Well, I wrote another book and then I didn't like it. But um, I'm at the early stages of a new book. And uh, like, I feel like I'm getting to know them. And it's sort of hard because it takes so much time. So I also think uh, maybe in the beginning of a project, some of this could be really helpful. I'm working through Tasha's. I've talk, already plugged this like so many times. My Our listeners will be bored of this. But anyway, the story, the character workbook that she has, it's great, actually, because even though like all the characters I don't want to do it for, those are the ones I definitely need to because I know them the least, you know. So probably similarly, like actually putting a little bit of discipline in and uh, like actually maybe using that intuition and get just getting out like you know, even a question, like there's so many questionnaires that you can fill in about characters and things like that, but that's still a little bit like in your head, whereas this is a little bit outside of that. So, you know, you can access your gut. I think that, yeah, I think that being able to say, I've done, I've done that kind of questionnaire work too. And I think it's really wonderful. I think writing that's not, 
I think of it as writing kind of alongside writing the book is so useful because sometimes it feels really good to just write and have it not have the pressure of this is the book, you know, in big quotes or with an underline or in bold font or something. And at the same time, I think that you can do yourself a favor. And I have found that going to the cards even takes me further out of that headspace. Sometimes I do both. I mean, I do, I do work through character worksheets and all of that. I will do a reading um, just for a character and say, okay, what do they want? What are they afraid of? Because I find that it, when I see that and I feel that kind of gut instinct of like, oh, that's what it is. It's, I knew it already. I just didn't have access to it. And sometimes I don't want to spend like five years getting to know this character to write the book. I want to, I want to get there a little more quickly. And which is not to say I've gotten there quickly. I've been working on this book since 2016. So I am not the poster child for fast writing, but I think that it does help in terms of the getting to know you process that, that you need to have with a character in order to really tell their story well. It's Megan's turn. I have a cat here and she doesn't want to go away. <laughs> Is it my turn? Okay. Yeah. No, I, and I don't know if I have another question specifically, but I do have, um, I actually do have a scene in my current book where a character gets a tarot reading and I have been stalling on doing that reading myself to see what it is. So I have it like in brackets, like tarot reading to come. And then, so now I'm, I'm, I'm really curious to see what happens when I do that reading and see what it does to the whole book. Are you going to just do a reading like you would do any other reading and not write? Uh, you're not picking the cards consciously. You're just doing a reading and then putting it in. Right. I'm not trying to create like fake a reading that would fit whatever is in the scene. Although I may end up doing like four different ones until I get the one that seems to feel the best. I love this. I don't know, maybe that's, and may, you know, part of me is like, well, maybe that's why I'm having such a hard time with this book, because I haven't done this reading, and I don't know what's going on, even though I have an outline, and I've written, like... Should we do a reading, like, right now? I know, I'm like, I know, I'm like, <laughs> what are you afraid of? What are you afraid is going to happen? I don't even know, and, like, at this point, I would have to, like, pull up the manuscript and go look through the scene and be like, what is she struggling with, and, like, what... With I, I haven't even come up with the questions, and this is the thing that I struggle with the most in readings, is um, coming up with the questions I'm supposed to be asking, oh, and getting, yeah. like the clarity on like, why am I pulling these cards? And what am I looking for? And so I think that's something I need to sit with a little bit longer. But when I do, I tell you what, when I do this reading, I will totally take a picture of it and post it and everyone can see and we can all like talk about it. Yeah, what we think it means. And then, you know, let y'all know how it goes and what it does. But maybe maybe that's my maybe that's my like afternoon assignment for my book is just figure out what the questions are. But just talking about that is a good, so you have a lot of writing prompts and you have like sample questions that you can ask, but how do you personally get that clarity of what what am I supposed to be asking? Because I, I honestly, I even struggle with this for like daily card pulls, mm. you know, even the whole like, what should I know about today? You know, pull a card, like it never feels like the right question. Yeah. Megan, yeah, but like, also, you're not doing it wrong. Like, this is I our know, new motto for this season <laughs> as well. Is like, you're not doing it wrong. So, FYI. Okay, sorry, Caroline. <laughs> no, I don't think you are either. I agree with that. And I think that I also feel that 
coming up with a question for a reading is often the most challenging part. People think that, oh, you know, I'm not going to know what the answers mean. But I think that having a question that's useful is tricky. So I find that I ask questions depending on the circumstances. So I, but I will say that I pretty much never ask a yes or no question or a leading question like, is this a good idea? Um, (laughs) Because I mean, and then I usually get a card that says the equivalent of what do you think? Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think that, you know, it's like, sorry, I'm not going to work with that. But I do think that asking about obstacles or goals is often a really helpful question. Like, what is missing from this scene? What am I, what am I missing? What, what is this need? This feels a little flat. What, what should I do about that? I found that to be a helpful question. Or what is the crucial part of this? What, what needs to be clear? What, am I, what do I need to focus on for this? Um, that was part of what I asked when I was trying to get back into my story the other day. It was like, okay, what's the most important thing that needs to be clear when I'm writing this scene? Because any scene can have any number of of things. It could be the plot. It could be something about the character. It would be something from the character's past. It could be something they're afraid of in the future. All of these things could be part of it. So I think being able to find clarity, often a question is about clarifying. Um, So I find that any kind of what are the obstacles? Also, something that I tend to ask in readings when I do readings with people we tend to do a card for what's really important and what do you not need to worry about in this moment? Because sometimes I think depending on what draft you're on, there are things that you need to really focus on and there are things that you don't need to focus on at this moment and you can do them in another draft. So sometimes just getting clear and and focusing your bandwidth, so to speak, on the right area can be really helpful. Because if you're trying to handle character development, plot development, describing everything really well, historical accuracy, you know, really good dialogue. You know, if you're trying to handle all these things at once, of course, you're not going to be able to write anything. You'll just sit there and go, uh, and, and not be able to move forward. So sometimes thinking, okay, what's the, what's the crucial thing here? What do I need to focus on? And what's the crucial thing about that? I I find those to be really helpful questions. I tend to ask a lot of what do I need to let go of, which as listeners will probably recognize um, is a question I ask in my daily life anyway, and something that I struggle with uh, as a like anxious, neurotic type personality. Um, so that is something that I actually, so yesterday when I was doing, and I this is something that I had posted um, on our Instagram, just on our stories, but I asked like, what is kind of what's the purpose of the book? Like what is not the purpose of the book? What is the objective, like, where is this, what is this book really trying to do? Not just say, but like, what's its like reason for being? And then what's missing? What do I need to let go of? And then what's standing in the way? Um, And so that was really interesting. That was the one where I pulled like tower, death, and like all of these really exciting um, upheaval things. So it was, it was really fun. And, And yeah, I think, I think definitely looking at like what's missing and what's, what doesn't need to be there are really helpful questions to ask. Yep. I think the the knowing what the focus is and what the emphasis needs to be. And I think of it sometimes having lived in LA for a long time and having connections to entertainment, although not huge ones, but I do think of a camera 
like, okay, the camera can only cover so much. So is this a wide shot? Is this close up? And what am I looking at? Those kinds of questions when you're writing a scene are, I find helpful because then you know where to put your attention. I think knowing where to put your attention and how you feel about it and, and what's underneath is, is often the main thing that I find helpful to know. Yes. I'm no, I'm like a novice as you guys know. So I'm going to, maybe I'm conscious of time. So I wonder if we could, uh, if my last, uh, question is super basic, but, um, like you said, you should pick, obviously the kitten deck is like the number one deck everybody should buy. But after that, um, what, how do people even start? Like I just Googled, by the way, like tarot decks, it's like a very scary place if you don't know anything about tarot. So can you just give us maybe some directions besides also your book, which we will also have obviously a link to and more information about and everything else. How do people get started? I think that doing as much as you can to see a deck before you buy it is really helpful. So I agree that Googling tarot deck online will unleash kind of the hordes, basically. It's like opening Pinterest and saying pretty, you know, and then just seeing what comes up. I'm going to try that in a minute. Just do pretty on Pinterest and see what happens. Oh my God. It's so there is a site called aeclectic.net. And that is at least just tarot decks. And the reason for looking at this site is because when you see a deck that you like, they will often have pictures of all of the cards in the deck. Because I've had it happen more than once that I've seen a deck promoted somewhere and at two or three images. And I love the images. And then I buy them and realize, oh, those are the only three images that I connected to in this deck. So it's helpful if you can either go to a shop that has decks where you can look through them and see how you feel about them. That's ideal because then you can feel the quality of the cards because there are different ones where the printing quality is different, the paper is different, and the size of the cards is different. Some of them, I tend to not love gigantic cards because I find them difficult to handle. Um, So if you can go somewhere where there's a bunch of decks in person, or if you have some friend who's a tarot junkie and has decks everywhere and you can go and check them out, that's a great one too. So if you can do that, that's the first case. The second case would be go to a eclectic and search for any deck that you've seen elsewhere and then look through all the cards and make sure that the imagery is consistently inspiring to you. There are also a bunch of tarot related Facebook groups, forums, and other kinds of discussion places. Um, the other place you can look is U.S. Games does publish a whole bunch of decks. So you can look on the U.S. Games site. By the same token, there are tons of creators on Etsy as well as Kickstarter. So, And Kickstarter is great if you back a deck. It, it often takes a really long time to get it, but you get to be invested in it. And they often have a really nice video about the philosophy behind it. And you can connect to the energy that went into the cards in the first place. Um, if you're looking to get started right away, that's maybe not the best place to get a deck because you'll get it like six, eight, nine, nine, 10 months, a year later. So don't make that your first deck. Um, But it is good over the long haul. And I find that there are a number of decks that do show up a lot. Like the Wild Unknown is a beautiful deck. It shows up a lot. If you like black and white imagery, if you like drawing, that's one that you may want to go to that's there a lot. And I think that just finding something where the color scheme, the subject matter, 
if you have something that you're really into, it may not be kittens. I may just be the cat junkie. If you, there are mermaid decks, there are nature decks, there are animal decks, there are women only decks, there are different sexual orientation decks. There are all kinds of things. So if there's an interest that feels particularly personal to you or connected to the book you're looking on, uh, you're working on, try searching that topic and tarot, see what comes up. You may find something. And there's just so many now that I think you will find something. And and don't feel bad if you end up with more than one. I laugh <laughs> at the thought of, I mean, I pared down when we moved and I still have like probably 50 or 60 decks after paring down, just so you know. <laughs> Amazing. Also pretty on Pinterest. It's not a good scene. Well, <laughs> okay. We'll skip it. We'll skip it. Um, That's funny. Yeah. So I think it's just, you, you kind of follow your gut. You can go down a rabbit hole. I mean, for days, days, weeks, months on the internet. But I think looking at a eclectic, looking for some keywords of, of imagery that tends to speak to you, if you tend to like nature, if you tend to like ocean, if you tend to like woods or, you know, whatever kind of thing, then try searching for that and see what comes up. The thing that may happen though, is you may find decks that you fall in love with that are out of print. And so then you can also dig around on eBay. Um, those tend to be kind of expensive. So just be aware of that before you get in there. But I think I would just have confidence that there is a deck that you're going to, you're going to like. And that another thing is, is if you find decks that you like the imagery, but it's not quite right for you. I have one deck that's probably my, one of my favorites. It's the dreaming way. And when I did a project that was 100 tarot readings, um, I just didn't like the white border on the cards. So I cut them off. I know this sounds crazy. Like, oh, you did what? Um, <laughs> yes, I cut off all of the borders. And now I really, really love them. Um, so that is something you can do. It is okay to modify them. This furthers the it's safe. They're not you know, they're not going to control your life. You can modify them. And also, if you really want to go down a rabbit hole, you can go on YouTube and look at, you know, trimmed tarot decks. And there are people, videos of them trimming and putting like gold ink around the edges. You can go like craft happy forever with it. So that's another option, which is super fun. I love this, actually. This is like a whole new world. It's always good to like find out a new corner of the universe that you can really explore for a while. It seems like there's a lot here. Um, no, but seriously, I'm like everything. I just think it's really interesting about um, the intuition and like I'm trying to trust that. So I think it's really exciting. I think so, too. I mean, you're allowed to have a connection with your intuition. I mean, I think for a long time also, <clears throat> I mean, women were burned at the stake for <laughs> really taking a risk and publicly talking about. I want to be connected to my intuition. This is valid, this information that didn't come in a newspaper or in some really traditional logical channel. I just know this is where this book needs to go. This is something that writers deal with all the time. So it's more in the writing tradition than we normally think, but it's it's okay. It's valid. And you're allowed to not be able to explain exactly how you got your ideas and where they came from. You know, they're still your ideas. Oh, I like that. It's a great place to end, actually. Like, <laughs> it's a good stopping spot. Well, thanks so much for talking to us. And um, we'll put links in the show notes to where people can get their own copy of the Story Arcana and everything else that we've talked about today. Yeah, thanks. 
Thank you so much. And that's it for this week. You can find us online at marginallypodcast.com and on Instagram at marginallypodcast. Our email is podcast at marginallypodcast.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to our newsletter. The sign-up form is on our website. And if you enjoy the show, please consider rating it and leaving a review in your podcast app and or sharing an episode with a friend. This will help us to grow our community. Thanks for listening and happy writing. Marginally is produced by the two of us, Megan and Olivia. So excuse any amateur issues. We're working on it. Theme music is It's Time by Scotty Casca. Show notes for every episode are available at marginallypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode of Marginally, you might also enjoy one of our favorite podcasts, Hashtag Am Writing with Jess and KJ. Every episode is full of great information and encouragement. Look for it wherever you get your podcasts or find the link in our show notes. Thanks for listening.